Father, we thank you for the privilege of gathering together. We thank you for the information, the instruction, the stories that you've preserved, both of our own denominational history, of uh, what we commonly term sacred history in the past, and of the far distant past prior even to the creation of our world. Lord, help us to be wise, to be prudent, to consider the instruction you've given and to make adequate preparation for our own soul's safety as we move forward, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, well, we've talked about Lucifer's beginning of the rebellion. We've talked about his accusations. We've talked about the work of Christ in responding to those accusations. We jumped on down then to Dr. Kellogg and the unique role that the Lord intended he should play. And um, there we go. Okay, get that back. And his his contribution, his role, his at his part in bringing on the beginning of the loud cry, the beginning of the revelation of the righteousness of Christ, not simply the proclamation. Unfortunately, Dr. Kellogg um, did not. You know, it's a bit of a touch of a ring. Maybe we can back it down a little bit. I, I hesitate to uh, raise my voice very high with the uh, setting right there. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to do it at some point, I'm afraid, and it's going to shatter things. Um, unfortunately, Dr. Kellogg did not persevere. Um, there are lessons in his decline and apostasy which are important. We have not commonly given attention to them in our treatment of our denominational history. We've just seen it as something that just kind of happened. He just, the, the poor man just wandered away. And that's hardly the picture at all when you get into the, the reality of the history. So I want to look quickly here this morning at the causes that led to Dr. Kellogg's apostasy and then the effects of that apostasy, some of the techniques, some of the details of that, and then try to squeeze in yet a look at what we might expect in the future. So the alpha of apostasy, the uh, tagline I put on that one, anything but God. Anything but God. Actually, you could almost say everything but God. Well, <clears throat> we are in a war, and Dr. Kellogg was one of the casualties. How did that come about? 1882. This is one of the earliest statements that I've used in this pre these presentations. 1882. This is long before Dr. Kellogg's reconversion, or conversion, whatever it was, at, in 1888. 
He had been, at this point, the medical director of the Battle Creek Sanitarium for six years. Ellen White writing, she says, I speak to every member of the church. In Christ's name, guard your thoughts, control your feelings, let your speech be such that heaven can approve. No longer be so sadly deceived as to think you are doing God's work and God's will in persecuting your brethren with your tongue, with your strong prejudice and jealousies. Why do you delight in making your wicked speeches and indulging your wicked feelings against Dr. Kellogg? Has he not sufficient burdens to, bur to carry? Would you crush him to the earth with your suspicions prompted of Satan? Would you feel great pleasure in seeing the Health Institute go down? Is this what you desire? So why did Dr. Kellogg get opposition? Why, did he, why was he opposed? Well, I don't know, a variety of reasons. One, perhaps, is he was dealing with fairly personal topics. Your lifestyle, diet, dress, habits, things like that. It's easy to step on people's toes. He was not always as cautious, perhaps, as he might have been. He wanted to get his message across. It was hard. People weren't always listening. You know, as a teacher, you try different things. You know, how do you, how do you get the attention of someone who's not paying attention to the lesson of the day, right? You know, you can try mild measures. You can try more harsh measures. You can, you know, what do you do? Sometimes he probably offended people. Perhaps needlessly so. I won't say that the man was perfect by any stretch. Another aspect that, frankly, I think is, was the, the, a part of it is that Dr. Kellogg was educated. He'd gone to medical school, which made him a, a uniquely qualified individual within the Adventist Church. He was clearly the most well-educated in terms of the world's perspective. Um, our ministers were basically apprentice individuals who had served under a previous minister. They had no formal training. They weren't highfalutin in their knowledge, you know, whatever. There's both good and bad in formal knowledge. Don't ever think that ignorance is a virtue. Don't ever think that uh, human knowledge in and of itself is a virtue. They are talents and opportunities that the Lord gives different ones. If you have a more formal education, use it for, the God, for God's glory. But don't think that it makes you special. If you don't have a formal education, don't hold it against those who do. The Lord's called you to a different role. Play your role faithfully. Support those. Encourage those. Maybe win enough confidence of those who have that education that you can actually correct them. You know, there's a, a, a quick aside that I'll mention here. You know, we've been told that Christ's method alone gives true success in reaching the people, right? You've heard that statement. He mingled among men as one desired their good. He ministered their needs. He won their confidence. And then he bade them follow me. How do you know when you've won someone's confidence? You know? How do you know? Are you going to, you, you, you're going to jump the gun if you don't, you know, you don't know. So how do you know if you've won their confidence? Comment? When they start asking questions. When they start asking questions, that's close. The word confidence comes from the word confide. 
When they are willing to confide in you, you have their confidence. That's actually not an easy thing to win. Confide means, well, break it down. Con is with. Fide is faith. To confide is when I have enough faith in someone to tell him or her that which they could use against me. That's confidence. When someone trusts you like that, then you're in a position to influence them. Win that confidence. How can you win that confidence? May I suggest medical missionary work as a a good option. (laughs) There's something about having saved someone's life that tends to win their confidence. It's a fairly powerful influence. Okay, let's go on. I'm talking too much. I've got to get going. Dr. Kellogg has needed the sympathy and confidence of his brethren. There should have been a tender compassion for him in his position of trust, and they should have pursued a course that would have gained and retained his confidence. God would have it thus, but there has been instead a spirit of suspicion and criticism. If the doctor fails in doing his duty and being an overcomer at last, those brethren who have failed in their want of wisdom and discernment to help the man when and where he needed their help will be in a large measure responsible. We can destroy souls. Don't do it. I'd like to point out that, um, as I said, I, I believe Dr. Kellogg had a role in the beginning of the loud cry. We've commonly seen that only as a matter of the theology of Elders Jones and Wagner. But I'd like to point out that Dr. Kellogg's, you know, the, the comments Ellen White makes about Dr. Kellogg are very similar. You know, she also says that if Jones and Wagner were to lose their way, it would be largely the result of their brethren who, who opposed them. She says the same thing right here about Dr. Kellogg. Now, let's go on. The past should be subject for keen regret. The Lord would now have the medical mission work recognized as the helping hand of God. Why now? Well, because it has not been recognized in the past. That's why. Okay, so there were those who failed to see the value of the work that Dr. Kellogg was doing, and they said, yeah, whatever, yeah, let him do his thing. No, 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 it is the helping hand of God. You, you need to value it as such, okay? The Lord has given Dr. Kellogg his work. It is a fact that our ministers are very slow to become health reformers, notwithstanding all the light which the Lord has given upon this subject. This has caused Dr. Kellogg to lose confidence in them. Okay, now before we jump too hard on the, on the ministers... Why were the ministers, as a group, notably slow in becoming health reformers? Because it wasn't easy. Ministers in those days were itinerant. They didn't have a church, and they just, you know, live here in whereverville, and, you know, go to church on Sabbath, and spend a few hours every day visiting their parishioners. No, no, no. They were itinerant evangelists. They were traveling all the time. This is a time period when you didn't even have, you didn't have refrigeration. You didn't even have blenders. How can you be a vegetarian without a blender? (laughs) Uh, And and here they are, they're traveling around trying to find food from non-vegetarian sources. Yeah, I I think that, you know, I I think it could have been a challenging thing for them. Let's put it that way. Well, they probably could have done better. They probably should have done better. Kellogg wished they'd done better. But they didn't. Kellogg lost confidence in him. You know what? One of the hardest things the Lord's going to ask you to do is to have confidence in faulty people. 
And you better do it or you're going to have no confidence in anyone because the rest of us are all faulty. Get over it. <laughs> Just get over it. You're going to have to learn work, to work with your brothers and sisters. And, and to fail to do that will destroy your value in the Lord's work. Going on. Speaking of the minister still. Their tardy work in health reform has created in him a spirit of criticism. And he has borne down on them in an unsparing manner which the Lord does not sanction. He has belittled the gospel ministry and in his regard and ideas has placed the medical missionary work above the ministry. I have seen that in the censuring of ministers, remarks have been made which have not been to the glory of God. I don't know if you've been catching the dates along here, but we've been moving kind of chronologically through this. I would say that the, the, the twist, the, the turn in Kellogg's annoyance with the ministry uh, you know, kind of, I would, I would hinge it around 1896, 1897. That, that's about the time point when, you know, he never wrote it down in any way that I can find, you know, but it, I, I, I sense uh, a change in his attitude. It's kind of like, these stupid ministers are not getting on board. I'll just do it myself. I can do more Christian work than the whole batch of them. And it was largely true in some ways. Those who refused the warnings of God followed a course of action which brought its sure result. These influences have sometimes made the work of Dr. Kellogg doubly as hard as it should have been. They have led him to stand apart in some degree from the ministry. Why? Because some, not all, some of the ministers were refusing the warnings of God in regard to health reform and other such things. So to some degree, Kellogg stood apart from them, right? I desire to present matters as they are presented to me. Such a spirit of criticism and fault-finding has done the work Satan designed should be done. That would be the criticism and fault-finding of the church members against Dr. Kellogg, right? Dr. Kellogg has been led to take the course he deemed it his duty to take. He has not connected with those who were not in sympathy with the work he knew to be of God. Okay? Yeah. How are we going to work together? You know? In, in, in all fairness, I suspect that if we were to comb each other's experience with the proverbial fine-tooth comb, I suspect we might find places where at one time or another we all fail to be fully in harmony with God. I don't think that's a good thing. I wish it were not so especially in my own life. I wish it were not so. But again, we've got to learn to work together. Not to support each other in our weaknesses, but we've got to learn to work together. Well, going on. Uh, Ellen White was not only writing to... Um, defend Kellogg, she was writing to Kellogg as well. And he needed to hear the other side of the story. I have light from the Lord that Dr. Kellogg needs to be guarded. He is leaving a wrong impression on minds. He has made a mistake in supposing that the medical mission work has an importance above every other work. Medical mission work has its place, but it has been made disproportionately important. Now, uh, yesterday, you, you may not remember it, but we had a statement where it spoke of people saying, Dr. Kellogg's medical work is disproportionately large. And she says, no, it's not. 
It's not disproportionately large. It only looks that way because the churches have done so little. She defended him on the large part. It should be a work that covers the earth as the waters cover the sea, as you may remember that statement. But now, this is a different category of thing. Kellogg is now making the work, the medical missionary work, disproportionately important and saying it's more important than the work of the ministry. This is not true. This is not true. Had Dr. Kellogg's brethren stood with him in the first of his experience in connection with health reform, the present condition of things would not now exist. The work had been done. The confidence had been damaged. The working relationship was wounded. Well, hmm. <clears throat> okay, let's move on. Although there may be unworthy ones connected with the ministry, yet no one can ignore the ministry without ignoring Christ. Dr. Kellogg, something is the matter. You are represented to me as being in danger of standing apart from our people, feeling that you are a complete whole. But if you bind yourself up with yourself, you will make a confederacy that will be broken in pieces. For no confederacy can stand but that which God has framed. Those who are receiving an education hear insinuations from time to time which demerit the church and the ministry. Do not, I beg of you, instill into the minds of the students ideas that will cause them to lose confidence in God's appointed ministers. But this you are most certainly doing, whether you are aware of it or not. The work done for those who come to you for instruction is not complete unless they are educated to work in connection with the church. There is such a thing, there is a role, definitely, for what we might call independent ministries. It is not a role that excludes the church. Let's see, there's something I wanted to catch back here. What was that? Um, da, 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 da. Yeah, whatever, let's go on. Okay, <clears throat> by 1900, things were getting serious. Oh, I know what I was going to say. All this time, Ellen White's in Australia, right? 1891 to September 1900, she's in Australia. So all she can do is write letters back to these people. <laughs> okay, that must have been really frustrating at times. <laughs> you feel kind of impotent here. Writing a letter, you know it's going to take six weeks to get there in the first place. <laughs> and, and then what? You know, whatever. Anyhow... By 1900, Ellen White was becoming more concerned. Dr. Kellogg was drifting both in his attitudes and also somewhat in his theology. Um, the, general, the camp meeting season of uh, 1897, no, not a camp meeting, but it was actually a general conference. The general conference of 1897 is the first time you start seeing the, the uh, elements of pantheism coming into his public presentations. Um, you can find them a little bit earlier than that. You have to go do some real, real digging. Uh, University of Michigan has a bunch of papers from Kellogg, uh, notes from his uh, staff meetings at the, at the uh, sanitarium, and you can find uh, references to pantheism just a little bit earlier. It seems to have arisen fairly quickly in his mind or come to the fore fairly quickly in his mind in, uh, in 1897, about that time. He had flirted with the ideas long before, back in 1882, and Ellen White had steered him away from those ideas, told him never teach that stuff. 
but it seems like 15 years later, about 1897, it started coming back again. And so you, you see traces of it in the General Conference uh, sermons that, that he gave at the General Conference of 1897, uh, a little bit more in 1899. It's interesting that Ellen White didn't really address that theological stuff. She was more concerned with his attitudinal issues. You know, how are you relating to the ministry? How are you, you know, what, what's, your, what's your understanding of your relationship to God's work in terms of uh, cooperative endeavor? So that's the stuff that Ellen White was, was writing about primarily. Um, but like I say, by 1900, it was, it was reaching a, a higher level of concern, and so she felt she had to uh, try and enlist the help of others. She wrote to the General Conference president, uh, this happens to be January 1, 1900, actually. She says, uh, seek to save Dr. Kellogg from himself. He is not heeding the counsel he should heed. It's dangerous. Don't listen to what God has to say. You're pretty well on your own. It's not going to end well. God forbid that the purposes Dr. Kellogg has in mind should be carried out. Our work is not to be a divided work. What's she saying there? Well, it's obviously an implication that Dr. Kellogg is somehow or the other thinking of dividing the work, whatever that might mean. Well, basically what it meant is just simply going his own, his own way, just kind of severing ties with the church. It was, he was tempted as early as the early 1900s to do that. And again, we saw this before, but when the gospel ministers, the medical missionary workers are not united, there is placed on our churches the worst evil that can be placed there. Now, it's interesting who, who suffers? <laughs> you know, the, the doctors, doctors seem to get along quite well. <laughs> it's the church that suffers when, when we split these, these elements that what God intends to have united. Okay, moving on. <clears throat> As opposition to Kellogg's work continued, it gave the devil opportunity to tempt him to impatience and pride. The Lord sent warnings or reproofs, but the doctor was listening less and less. The Lord has sent you warnings, but you have not heeded them. The deceptive power of the enemy has led you to leave God's banner trailing in the dust. Well, Dr. Kellogg has committed himself as working undenominationally in a work which has taken the money from a people who are decidedly a denominational people. Okay, so why, what's this undenominational thing all about? Well, uh, if you trace that to its roots, and you have to go back in some uh, committee minutes and things like that to actually get to the bottom of this one, but if you trace this undenominational thing to its roots, it was basically that Kellogg was at this point in time looking at uh, trying to receive the, the recognition of uh, a still relatively small and, as compared to, to today, unimportant organization that was, was rising in its level of importance. And, and Kellogg thought, you know, hey, if, I, if, if they would you know, lend their recognition to our work here at the sanitarium, that would be an asset. And it might well have been in certain ways. In other ways, it wasn't because it, one of their issues was that they were not supporting denominational work, okay? That would have been the American Medical Association. And um, the American Medical Association has played an intricate role in an interesting relationship with the development of Adventist medical work. Um, I do not want to... Um, demonize the AMA. I am thankful for the work of the AMA. I think they've done quite a bit to improve medical care. But one of the things that they have not done, 
and I, I haven't gone through every piece of record I could find on the AMA, but I'm pretty sure that if I did, I would never find where they spent a moment's notice worrying about how to further the work of Adventist evangelism. Uh, that's, not their, that's not their department, so to speak, okay? And we have hurt ourselves in various ways at various times by our efforts to court their favor without adequately recognizing that they're not on the same page. <laughs> okay, um, that's another story, but let's go on. <clears throat> the work has been hindered. The cause of God should have a different showing, far different. And who is to blame for this hindrance? You, Dr. Kellogg, give heed to men not of our faith. You delight to show what you have done and by a free use of money that was not yours to handle in a way that God has not appointed. Uh, lots of stories you could go there about Dr. Kellogg's um, use of funds. He was, a, he was an extremely successful fundraiser. Uh, he, was, he was pretty good. And um, he himself, as an individual, this is one of the, the enigmas about Kellogg, as an individual, he was extremely unselfish. But in terms of his work, he was perfectly willing to absorb all the funds he could get his hands on. Kind of an interesting twist, okay? It got to the point where Ellen White was off in Australia this whole time, and she was writing back to him and says, Dr. Kellogg, we are dying for want of funds over here. You're using too much. Send us something. <laughs> and uh, all sorts of twists and turns in that, but anyhow, let's go on. Well, February 18, 1902, the Battle Creek Sanitarium burnt to the ground. Um, Dr. Kellogg was given the opportunity to split his work up into five or ten different places and scatter them across the countryside, something that Ellen White had often wished and had written to him, you know, wishing that, had, or, you know, simply saying that things would be much better if we didn't have this one big institution, but we had maybe ten scattered around the countryside, okay? Um, Dr. Kellogg does not seem to have given any serious thought to doing that, however. By this time, he was sufficiently, um, what should I say, unimpressed with the ministers and their acknowledged tendency to try and control his work, which Ellen White said would be like taking a young child and putting him in charge of the, uh, the great ships of the sea, okay, type of thing. In other words, they weren't qualified. They, they as, as ministers, they were not qualified to try and run a medical institution. But they had a tendency to want to try and do that, and Kellogg resented that, and so um, he, um, he had come to the conclusion that the only safe way to protect his work, and there's truth in this, he was not, he was not imagining things, the only safe way to protect his medical work was for him to control it all himself. Now, in that he was wrong, don't get me wrong. He, he was correct in, in realizing that others were, who were unqualified would have been happy to try and take control of his work. Okay, he was correct in that part. He was incorrect in saying, I just have to control everything myself. Well, when the sanitarium burned down, the idea of building 10 little sanitariums scattered around the countryside might have had a certain amount of appeal. Dr. Kellogg often gave it at least lip service. But you know what? It's, it's a whole lot easier to control one thing than it is to control 10. <laughs> and Kellogg knew there was going to be a power vacuum if he did that, and there was no way he was going to do that. So 
He, he kind of played the game for a little while, saying, oh, maybe I should go somewhere else, you know. And he was, he was pretty slick with that. Actually, he got a lot of financial support out of the, the community at Battle Creek. They said, oh, we'll cut the taxes on, the, on, the, on your work, and we'll do this, and we'll give you this, and we'll help you this. Because they wanted the sanitarium in Battle Creek. It was big business, right? It was, it's, it's what made Battle Creek Battle Creek, right? So he, he played like he was going to go somewhere else for a while, but he had no intention of doing that whatsoever. And he... he would later on boast that he had you know, kind of pulled a fast one on them. Um, he presented his plans to the General Conference, and uh, his plans were uh, somewhat more modest than the previous building had been. Um, it's interesting, the leaders, the uh, General Conference president at the time was uh, Arthur Daniels, um, Kind of his right-hand guy was W.W. Prescott, and they did a lot of communication back and forth. Wooly White was on the West Coast, the General Conference on the East Coast, but still, Wooly was uh, an influential member of the, the uh, General Conference Executive Committee. And, uh, and so they did a lot of communicating back and forth and whatnot. They approved Kellogg's plans. And it's fascinating to me that when Kellogg later on said, they all signed off on it, Ellen White would write to him and say, yeah, they did, but they hadn't gotten the counsel you had. I am fascinated to the degree that Ellen White saw fit to compartmentalize her instruction. She didn't tell everyone what the other guy needed to know. If I think I need to know what everyone's doing around me, I'm probably wrong. <laughs> okay? The Lord does, does not seem to favor that kind of pseudo-omniscience on the part of his people. Okay? Anyhow, so Dr. Kellogg decided to build in Battle Creek, but, you know, he did need money. Now, because, largely because of some, oh, bad business deals that Kellogg had had a part in encouraging, unfortunately, uh, the church at this point was, was absolutely head over heels in debt. Um, a lot of that problem came from the Boulder Sanitarium, which um, you know, some misguided folks at the General Conference somehow got fired up on, oh, let's go do this. And Kellogg said, oh, let's go do this. And it, it cost them a huge amount of money, and, and it, was, it was an ill-advised venture from the, from the get-go. Uh, but that largely contributed to the debt that the General Conference was facing on many institutions because they'd spent all the available funds and you know, everybody else was, was suffering as a result. So Kellogg knew there was, he wasn't going to get a lot of money out of the General Conference. It was just not, they didn't have it. He wasn't going to get it. And so, among other things, he came up with a plan. He says, you know, I've just finished writing a book. Kellogg wrote 50 books in his lifetime. 52, I think it is something like, I don't remember the exact number, it was something like, more than 50. Um, just to give you one quick story of, of you know, Kellogg's uniqueness as an individual. Uh, every morning at 5 o'clock, he would you know, bounce out of bed type of thing and hit the floor running. He'd go outside, and out in front of his house, he had a large paved circular area. And he would go out there and he would exercise, riding his bicycle furiously around and around this circle. Well, now, you know, if you're a mere mortal like you or me, you might say, okay, exercise is good, but why don't you, you know... Uh, 
Go down the road, at least get some scenery. What's the point in going round and round circle? Well, the point in going round and round circle was that in the middle of the circle, sitting on a stool, was a stenographer taking dictation. <laughs> and Kellogg would dictate a book. And it was done. Like, no copy editing, just print it. <laughs> okay? Uh, and that's part of the reason Kellogg could, could write off so many books. I mean, the guy was brilliant. Okay. <clears throat> but, you know, so he said, you know, I've just written a book. Here's what I'll do. I will donate my proceeds. I'll, I'll donate all my, my royalties. Let's get the Review and Herald to print it without, you know, any profit on their part. Let's get the church members to sell it without taking their uh, call porter commission type of thing. And, and all the proceeds will go to, to help rebuild the sanitarium. How's that for an idea? Well, the General Conference had no other money available whatnot. And they said, oh, that's a great idea, actually. Uh, we think it's a splendid idea was the term that was used. And so Dr. Kellogg turned over to them the manuscript of his book. Um, you may have heard of it. It was called The Living Temple. Um, eventually, it raised some concerns. Uh, a few individuals looked it over and said, yeah, this has got pantheism in it. Now, pantheism, just in case you're not familiar with it, praise the Lord if you're not, but anyhow, <laughs> pantheism is the belief that God is in everything and essentially everything is God. Okay? So... Um, it, it's, it's basically Hinduism with you know, a slight twist, I suppose. But everything is God. So the air, God is in the air. God is in your food. God is in the tree. God is, you know, whatever. Um, they don't, pantheists don't generally put a lot of stock on uh, you know, inorganic materials, perhaps. But anything that has life in it at all, and a lot of things that are, are really actually, you know, like, space and the universe, you know, there's an awful lot of the universe that has no biological life in it, as near as we know at this point. Um, but still, they, they, they see this all as being God. And, and, and a repackaging of that is the idea of Gaia, which you might have heard in your local health food store, right? <laughs> um, new agey health food store center type of thing, this, the Gaia, Mother Earth kind of concept. So that's, that's sort of pantheism. And Kellogg, in the book Living Temple, had some elements of pantheism there. By today's standards, it was exceedingly light, as near as I can tell, okay? Uh, Ellen White said, don't read the book. I've never read the book. I would suggest that you do not read the book. Just don't read the book, <laughs> okay? We'll, we'll touch on that a little bit later on, but don't read the book. Uh, so all I really know about it are about three paragraphs that everybody has always quoted ever since the early 1900s. Say, this is pantheism. Well, if that's the worst that was in the book, trust me, it's pretty mild by today's standards, okay? Um, but anyhow, <clears throat> it did have that in that. So people raised some concerns. Eventually, it went to the General Conference. They said, oh, well, we better think about this. You know, a lot of people said, we think it's a great book. There were a few that said, uh-uh, no, no, this is, this is actually a, a terrible book. I hope it never gets printed. Um, <clears throat> that led to a lot of tension <laughs> between Kellogg and those who supported him and the General Conference, which eventually said, no, we will not support this, this book. Um, now, to give you a little idea of the kind of schizophrenic attitude of, of people church structures at the time. The General Conference said, we're not going to print the book. And so Kellogg said, fine, I'll print it myself. So he took his manuscript and he went to the largest, best 
uh, equipped printing press west of the Mississippi and said, will you print my book? And the Review and Herald said, sure, we'll print it. Uh, yeah, okay, a little disconnect between what's going on at the Review and what's going on at the General Conference. The Review said, yeah, we, we do commercial work, you know, we'll print anything. You pay, we print. Uh, that was unfortunate. Um, <clears throat> the, uh, the printing pr plates for the book were sitting on the press room floor, ready to go on the press the next day when the Review and Herald burnt to the ground on December 30, 1902. Now, what's perhaps most remarkable about this whole experience, to my mind, is Ellen White's determined efforts to save Dr. Kellogg. At the General Conference session of 1903, a full year after he's written Living Temple, I mean, this guy is a pantheist, right? General Conference session of 1903, she gives her, I would say, her strongest public defense of Dr. Kellogg. She's not defending the pantheism. She didn't say anything about Living Temple. She didn't say anything about pantheism. That's all she's talking about. She's trying to hang on to this guy. Because as she would write, I don't think, it, it may be in here later on, but as she would, would write later on, she says, of, of, of anyone, Dr. Kellogg is the one individual who can do the most to help or to hurt God's church at this time. He was a special guy. Well, here's what she said in 1903. God does not endorse the efforts put forth by different ones to make the work of Dr. Kellogg as hard as possible in order to build themselves up. little ego thing going on. God gave the light on health reform, and those who rejected it rejected God. One and another who knew better said that it all came from Dr. Kellogg, and they made war upon him. This had a bad influence on the doctor. Now, that's really surprising, isn't it? You know, somebody's shooting at you, that might have a bad influence on you too, right? They made war on the doctor, and it had a bad influence. Surprise, surprise. He put on the coat of irritation. Cute little expression right there. And retaliation. God did not want him to stand in a position of warfare, and he does not want you to stand there. Kellogg failed. Don't get me wrong. I think we have under-recognized the role of those who opposed him. But you know what? Kellogg's only example is Christ. And there were quite a few people who opposed him too. The hardest test you will ever face is the opposition of your brothers and sisters. Get used to it. Get ready for it. It will come. If it doesn't come, it means you're doing nothing significant. Okay, well, in all of this, Ellen White uses an interesting terminology. She spoke of the alpha and the omega of apostasy. So a little quick Greek primer. <laughs> Trust me, this is about all I know about Greek. But, you know, the first letter of the Greek alphabet is alpha. The second letter is beta. That's actually where we get our word alphabet. Alpha, beta, gamma, lane. That's as far as I know in the Greek alphabet. But anyhow, alpha, beta, that's, that's, that's where we get our word. So, but the alpha is the first letter. The last letter is the omega. And so Ellen White used that. Well, the Bible uses that. You know, Jesus says, I am the alpha and the omega, right? You've, you've heard that, okay. But Ellen White picked up that same terminology and used it in discussing Kellogg's apostasy, okay? Um... 
Let's just jump in here. Many will depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. We have now before us the alpha of this danger. The omega will be of a most startling nature. Okay? There are only three statements that really make a, a uh, that really talk about both the alpha and the omega together. And that, that's somewhat significant. It's, it's yeah, let's go on. Living Temple contains the alpha of these theories. I knew that the omega would follow in a little while, and I trembled for our people. In the book Living Temple, there is presented the alpha of deadly heresies. The omega will follow and will be received by those who are not willing to heed the warning God has given. What is the warning God has given? She never specifies. The warning above all warnings in terms of frequency during this time period, the one that I suspect, you know, if I had to point to a warning and say, this is the warning God has given, you better heed it, or you will be uh, receptive to the Omega Apostasy. The warning that I, I would point to, don't read the book. Don't play with that stuff. Today, I think we could expand that, you know. Uh, don't look at the website. Don't watch the YouTube video, right? There's there, there is stuff that is purely and simply ill-advised <laughs> for Christian consumption. Don't mess with it, okay? As I am shown these special things of Satan's science and how he deceived the holy angels, notice the link here. This is why we started with Lucifer yesterday or the day before, whenever it was. As I am shown these special things of Satan's science and how he deceived the holy angels, I am afraid of the men who have entered into the study of the science that Satan carried into the warfare in heaven. Oh, how I have longed to be where I should not be compelled to see the same science practiced on this earth by medical practitioners. How my heart has been agonized as I have seen souls accepting the inducements held out to them to unite with those who were warring against God. When they once accept the bait, it seems impossible to break the spell that Satan casts over them. Because the enemy works out the science of deception as he worked it out in the heavenly courts. He uses human agencies to carry on his work with other human beings. He has worked so diligently with men in our day that he has won the game again and again. I would actually, you know, you feel free to differ with me on, on anything. It's, it's okay. But, you know, this first line up here, when they once accept the bait, it seems impossible to break the spell. I would say that there's far more application of that today than there was in Kellogg's day. It's a fascinating uh, account, and I am I'm just kicking myself because I, I read this, well, it was 1987, actually, is when I read it, and I, I was preparing an article at the time that dealt with spiritualism and such things, and, and I cannot find the account again, and I'm just kicking myself that I, I can't. Um, as I recall the, the story, and, and it's very vivid in my mind, there's reasons why it was vivid, because I'd just gone through a very similar experience uh, myself. But um, I believe that the account was written by a woman by the name of Marilyn Ferguson. Marilyn Ferguson wrote a book in the, in the 19, early 80s, I think, maybe about 81, something like that. I'm not sure exact year. The title was The Aquarian Conspiracy. She's not an Adventist by any stretch. She's actually... Uh, an Aquarian. She would call herself an Aquarian. She is, was, a, at the time, in the 70s, 80s, the term was New Age, right? We don't use that term anymore. We call it spiritual. But, you know, uh, she was a, a New Age advocate, and her 
the conspiracy she was writing about was taking over the world. Okay? That was, and, and she was advocating the conspiracy. She's not, this was not an expose. Oh, no, they're doing these terms. No, no, no. She was saying, we are taking over the world. Okay? And in the, not in that book, and that's what puzzles me, because I, I believe it was from her, but it was not, it's not in that book. Um, but she tells of having gone to a convention of Luciferians. I believe it was in Atlanta, Georgia. They have big convention centers there. It's a big convention place. Um, they had about 5,000 attendees. Um, now, Luciferians are not Satanists. You want to maintain a little bit of a distinction there. They don't even believe in Satan. Okay? They say that Satan is nothing more than all the lies that the nasty Christians have told about Lucifer. Lucifer's the good guy. Lucifer's the light bearer. Um, and interestingly enough, their primary evidence for how it is that the Bible and the Christian tradition is lying, they go to Genesis. The snake said, you won't die. Adam and Eve didn't die that day, so they say, who told the truth? The snake told the truth. That's Lucifer. He's our guy. Um, so anyhow, um, 5,000 Luciferians, and she... Being a researcher type, she, she spread abroad this uh, questionnaire and, and basically it boiled down to this. It says, you probably weren't raised in a Luciferian home, so what was your first contact? What was your first contact? If I remember correctly, it was like 46% all said essentially exactly the same thing. My first contact was in a stress control seminar in my local Christian church. She said, let me give one illustration to, this is typical of the great, not the majority, 46% is a, you know, a plurality, but not a majority. But, you know, um, she says, let me, let me give you an illustration. And so she quoted a letter, or she quoted an account written by a Baptist minister. This is probably uh, you know, a, a small town Baptist, you know, independent Baptist church, you know, congregationalist church. It was probably you know, a construction worker or something during the week, but on Sunday it was a Baptist minister. You know how that, that works, okay? Now, put yourself in the poor man's position, right? He's got a little church. He's trying to hold his little church together. He's trying to, you know, make it something of significance amongst his, you know, his parishioners and whatnot. Along comes some guy who says, hello, pastor, I'm uh, an itinerant uh, seminarist. <laughs> I give lectures. Would you like to have a lecture on Christian stress control? I could squeeze it in next Wednesday night. I don't charge anything. We just take up a love offering. Well, of course the minister's going to say yes. I mean, you know, it's, it's a chance to, you know, kind of minister to his flock and bring the people out to church, right? So he said yes. And this is a first-hand account from this Baptist minister. He said yes. What happened is that the seminarist, you know, I can tell you the exact procedure. The very first thing that they do is they win your confidence. You have to trust them. You have to respect them. You have to somehow believe that they can do something wonderful for you, okay? And then they take you through a series of physical exercises, which probably in and of themselves are, are not wrong at all, or, or not, not evil in any sense, as near as I would know. You know, and it's, it basically goes like, oh, stress your, you know, just, your right arm now, relax. Oh, left arm, relax. And you're, you're stressing for like 20 seconds and relaxing, you know, whatnot. Now your left leg, right leg type of thing. Your abdominal muscles, now your face. Now everything all at once. And now relax. But you're lying down on the floor. See, you get you lying down on the floor. Now you relax. 
And then they just throw something new in at you and say, close your eyes. Just imagine you're at the beach. You can hear the wind. You can see the clouds. You feel the sunshine. You're all by yourself. What a peaceful location. Stress control. We're just relaxing here now. But now imagine, in your own mind, imagine you looked way down the beach to the right and you see there's, there's someone walking towards you. Only one person. Nobody else on the beach. But there's this one person who comes walking towards you. And he comes closer and closer. And, and, and finally, he's, you recognize him. And it's Jesus. And Jesus walks up and he's, he's smiling. You can see he's smiling. And he walks up right in front of you and he says, what does Jesus say to you? The process is known as guided imagery. It um, happened at a school I happened to be teaching at about a year before. That's why I say it was fresh in my mind. It was a very clear memory of all this sort of thing. Um, it was brought to the school by an itinerant Seventh-day Adventist seminarist <laughs> who did not adequately investigate the materials that they were dealing with. This Baptist minister wrote, and he said, when Jesus, quotes, when Jesus spoke to me, it, what he said was so obviously not a figment of my own imagination, I knew immediately I was in touch with a higher power, and that was the turning point in my life, and as I explored that, that's how I became a Luciferian. When they once accept the bait, it seems impossible to break the spell. Don't read the book. Don't mess with the stuff. Stay away from it. It can change your life in the blink of an eye. Time after time, you read these accounts of individuals who have sought this mystical experience, and it is an overpowering sensation. It's interesting. One of the, one of the almost universally reported elements of it is that you feel this great sense of oneness with the universe. Oh yeah, that's pantheism. <laughs> that's pantheism, okay. Anyhow, okay, uh, moving on. We have reached the perils of the last days, when some, yes many, shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. Be cautious in regard to what you read and how you hear. Take not a particle of interest in spiritualistic theories. Satan is waiting to steal a march upon everyone who allows himself to be deceived by his hypnotism. He begins to exert his power over them just as soon as they begin to investigate his theories. Don't read the book. Suffer not yourselves to open the lids of a book that is questionable. There is a hellish fascination in the literature of Satan. It is a powerful battery by which he tears down a simple religious faith. Never feel that you are strong enough to read infidel books, for they contain a poison like that of asps. They can do you no good and will assuredly do you harm. In reading them, you are inhaling the miasmas of hell. Don't read the book. Now, I have to tell you, I've had to wrestle with this in doing my own research. I have not read Living Temple. I am not going to read Living Temple. Um, when the correspondence of Dr. Kellogg became available to me, I, I did a lot of thinking before I read it. 
Should I read this stuff? I will tell you what I did. I won't say it was the perfect choice. I read everything that Ellen White wrote to or about Dr. Kellogg in the published works and in the recently released letters and manuscripts over a period of 15 years from 1892 to 1907. I read everything that she wrote to or about him before I touched his stuff. And I would say that I still place myself at some risk. The guy's very persuasive, not so much in his theology. He didn't write much theology, so he didn't run into that. I would have probably, you know, his philosophy, I, I probably would have just, you know, shut it down if I had. But he's very, very persuasive in gaining your sympathy and, and making you feel like, you know, he's, he's, he's pure as the new driven snow and everybody else is at fault. So I, I say that just simply to say that I think it's a danger. I think it's a risk. And Kellogg's not the only source. <laughs> Don't get me wrong, okay? Uh, there are lots of things where I would say the best counsel is don't read the book. Don't watch the video. Don't, you know, whatever. Just a lot of people. Don't listen to the people. Some people, you can't, you know, whatever. Let's go on. <clears throat> As Dr. Kellogg drifted further and further from God, his influence spread more and more. The thoughts of Ellen White often turned to the story of Lucifer. As she sought to alert others to the growing problems, she realized that Dr. Kellogg was following in the same track as Lucifer. She wrote to the general conference officer. She said, read my books, Patriarchs and Prophets, Great Controversy, the story of the first great apostasy. History is being repeated and will be repeated. Read then and understand. You guys aren't catching on what's going on here with Kellogg. You need to, you need to get a grip, folks. <laughs> That's what she was saying to them. It's no wonder Lucifer's story explains so much about Kellogg's apostasy. It turns out that what Kellogg was doing was all choreographed by Lucifer. No greater deception could be presented to the minds of men than the representation you, Dr. Kellogg, have made of God. Souls will be lost to the sowing of the sentiments found in living temple. In presenting error, you have united with the prince of darkness. When you wrote that book, you were not under the inspiration of God. There was by your side the one who inspired Adam to look at God in a false light. You have been the spokesman repeating the words of accusation and condemnation of the arch-deceiver. Your science has been used to benumb the sensibilities and confuse the judgment of others. In long night talks, notice that. That's the, uh, in, in Lucifer's case in heaven, the thing that Ellen White focuses on most was this whole thing of planting seeds, getting them to, to say something, and then taking that and repeating it elsewhere, okay? In Kellogg's case, the thing that she repeats, deals with more often than any other, was this talk, 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 talk. He would just kind of wear them down uh, just late at night often, and, and just, he was so uh, articulate, so verbose, you know, he would talk so much. he just wear you down until you ended up accepting something, okay? So in long night talks, you've presented your mind and plans and works, and these have become their mind and plan and works. In listening to your words, these men have imbibed the very science of the tempter. You have twisted and manipulated and misstated and misrepresented the testimonies that God has given, making them of no effect. The whole matter has been presented to me. 
You have worked, as Lucifer worked in the heavenly courts to persuade his associates to unite with him. The enemy has used his arts upon your mind, your boasted study of science, and your assertion that you had obtained something excellent, have deceived the men connected with you, and they have refused to listen to the warnings sent to keep them from listening to your false representation. Ellen White was writing to a lot of Kellogg's associates, saying, don't listen to this guy. And they said, oh, but he's got some wonderful things to say. When I was in Tacoma Park, that's general conference, basically, living in Carroll House, many things were presented to me in vision. One of them, a committee meeting held during the night hours in the Battle Creek Sanitarium. That meeting was conducted by Dr. Kellogg. Many of the physicians were present, and W.C. White, her son, having been sent for to attend a special council, was reined up in this committee meeting, which is to say they ganged up on him, okay? Oh, what agony of mind I suffered as I was viewing the way in which Dr. Kellogg conducted that meeting I may sometime describe it, but not now. This is an actual occurrence. It happened just after the Lake Union Conference uh, in 1904, so it was about like May 16 or something, I forget the exact date, 1904. Uh, Woolley was urgently summoned to come to the sanitarium, and he got there, uh, well, like 8 o'clock at night or something like that, and figured, well, I'll, I'll meet with him tomorrow, but somehow they, they basically grabbed him and hauled him off into, you know, this long night meeting that went till like, 4 o'clock in the morning or something like that. Um, she goes on with this account. She says, I have told Willie that if ever plans were made for him to go into another night session with Dr. Kellogg, and I knew it, I would certainly exercise all the power God would give me to break up such an interview. Evil angels were there, and if physicians present had had their true senses about them, they would have understood the spirit and influence of the actions of Dr. Kellogg and the words spoken by him on that occasion. It's, it, it intrigues me, this thing about talk, 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 that she, as she mentions so often about Kellogg. It seems like such a simple thing. Uh, but I, I have to believe that if not me and if not you, somebody needs that warning. <laughs> okay? That warning is going to play its role in someone's experience, uh, or it's, at least hopefully it will. Um, Okay, moving on. Got to go quickly. It would have been better for Dr. Kellogg if he had never been born, if he continues to build himself up in his own magical arts of mind in influencing other minds. We're moving into the question of hypnosis here. What chapters of experience will be opened before the universe of heaven? The light will reveal every phase of his companionship with satanic agencies. Just as Lucifer used hypnosis in heaven, Dr. Kellogg was using it here. I, knew this, I know the seducing power of Kellogg's advisor and have no other name to give it but the seductive influence of satanic agencies. Dr. Kellogg has dealt in this influence to a greater or less degree. He has not changed except to be more secretive. I have not one ray of hope regarding him unless he understands that through satanic agencies he is striving for power over human minds. This has been shown me. Hypnosis is big business today. Um, if you're looking for the terminology that you would find today, not that many people, uh, where you, you run into the word hypnosis uh, usually uh, on, on these guys that, you know, uh, do these hypnotic acts, you know, which are just made to impress people and whatnot, that's just a, in, in the real business, they don't call it hypnosis so much anymore, they've got other terms for it. Um, one that rose to prominence for a period of time is actually kind of waning, I think, is already is neuro-linguistic programming. Uh, you may hear of Ericksonian hypnosis or uh, Eric, Ericksonian influences. You may run into Eberhard Seminar's training, EST. Um, these are all various branches of hypnosis. Don't read the book. 
<laughs> Don't touch the stuff. Stay away from that. Dr. Kellogg is linked up with the great deceiver. He has not realized what he was doing any more than the angels who fell realized what they were doing. Now that scares me. That scares me. Because you can go straight to hell and never know what you're doing. Don't want to do that. But he has tempted Satan to tempt him. He read the book, right? Okay. He has studied hypnotism and spiritualism for the purpose of bringing minds to endorse sentiments that mean a denial of the faith once delivered to the saints. He has not entered upon his, this work all at once, but by degrees... He has ensnared his own mind and capabilities. He would now resort to any device rather than to humble his heart before God and to acknowledge his wrong. Now, this is interesting because in all my research, going through all the records I can get from the University of Michigan and Michigan State University, both have Kellogg records, the General Conference Archives, the Andrews University Heritage Room, everything I can get a hold of, I have never found anything that I could independently point to and say, Kellogg was studying hypnotism. I can't point to anything else and say, Kellogg was into spiritualism or mysticism, other than the pantheism, that, that, that fairly mild pantheism in Living Temple. It's the only thing I can concretely say, well, yeah, there's that solid evidence. I'm sure Ellen White was right. I don't know exactly what form, Kellogg specifically denied. He said, I, I, I've never read anything like that. I don't have time to read anything like that. And actually, to be honest, that sounds pretty true to Kellogg's nature and character. But if he didn't read something like that, then the comments about Ellen White saying that he was being taught by the devil directly are maybe even a little more ominous. You know, maybe he was getting his hypnotic uh, understandings directly from the source. I don't know. I have seen Dr. Kellogg exerting a hypnotic influence upon persons, and at such times the arch-deceiver was his helper. Those who sustain him are guilty with him. The blindness of understanding is a strange thing in our ranks. Dr. Kellogg places himself in the position of one who is abused because he cannot carry everything with him. In other words, he doesn't get everything he wants, right? But he is still at work with all subtlety. I have warned our people, for they do not understand his underhand secret of working. And he works with such ingenuity to obtain sympathy that to many his words seem genuine. Just as did Lucifer in heaven, he sought to cultivate the sympathy of those he wanted to enlist in his side. Um, he played the victim. Do not play the victim. Be a man or a woman in Christ. You are not the victim. Anything that comes to you comes through the Father's hands first. You are not a victim. Don't play the victim. It puts you in a mindset that will take you straight out of the hands of God. Because you're going to go looking for some, some solution. Whatever the issue. If you play victim, you're not looking to God. Because God is not victimizing you. God is working for your salvation measuring every step of the, your experience. Okay, let's go on. Mysticism. As I say, I can't find direct evidence of, you know, uh, uh, independent evidence of Kellogg really being involved in this, but Ellen White asserts it, and so I'm, I, I've developed quite a level of confidence in her, <laughs> in her statements, and so I believe her even when I can't support it, okay? Um, in some ways... 
this mysticism thing is a major concern. I think it's more applicable to our day than it was in his. She wrote, we need not the mysticism that is in living temple. Those who entertain these sophistries will soon find themselves in a position where the enemy can talk with them and lead them away from God. The whole point of mysticism is to have this spiritual experience, this, this great enlightening of the mind, this direct contact with divinity. Uh, well, actually, it's not divinity, but that's part of the deception of the whole thing. Anyhow, your ideas, Dr. Kellogg, are so mystical that they are destructive to the real substance, and the minds of some are becoming confused in regard to the foundation of our faith. If you allow your mind to become thus diverted, you will give a wrong mold to the work that has made us what we are, Seventh-day Adventists. So what is mysticism? The heart of mysticism is the idea that I, as a human being, can be in control of events and circumstances that will at least foster, if not guarantee, a direct contact with deity. Okay, that's mysticism. So if I think that by meditating for 20 minutes every morning, I can establish direct contact with divinity, that's a mystical practice. Okay, makes sense? You follow what I'm saying? Anything where I think that I'm, I can control this is a mystical practice. Now, I find it fascinating that Ellen White, long before this ever became an issue in the mystical front that way, in the very early years of her ministry, she vigorously denied that she could have a vision when she wanted one. She wrote... It is utterly false that I have ever intimated that I could have a vision when I please. There is not a shade of truth in this. I have never said I could throw myself into visions when I please, for this is simply impossible. Now, to me, this, where she goes next here is, is, a, is, a, is a hot tip that all the folks who are seeking spiritual enlightenment through meditation or breathing exercises or guided imagery or centering prayer or whatever, whatever, whatever are on the wrong track. Notice Ellen White's enthusiasm at this point. <laughs> I have felt for years that if I could have my choice and please God as well, I would rather die than have a vision. For every vision places me under great responsibility to bear testimonies of reproof and of warning which has ever been against my feelings. There are at least three places she said, I would rather die than have a vision. And all the rest of the world is, oh, let's do yoga. I think they're missing something. Whatever they're experiencing, it ain't the same thing she was experiencing. But mysticism is pervasive in our society today. You can find mystics just about everywhere. There are mystics in the Catholic Church. You remember that uh, movie, um, was it the, the Passion of the Christ or something like that? Uh, who was the guy? Some famous director. Mel Gibson. Gibson, thank you. That's the guy. Yeah. Mel Gibson is a hardline old school Catholic. And that, vi that uh, movie, from, as I, well, from his statements, was not based on the Bible. It was based on the visions of some Catholic mystic, uh, somebody of Avila, what was her name? Some. Uh, I don't know, some, somebody. Anyhow, um, I may have the wrong mystic. Pick a mystic, any mystic, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> uh, yeah, it, was based on, it was based on her writings. That wasn't based on the Bible. So there are mystics in Catholicism, all the way from the Desert Fathers, back in about the 2nd and 3rd centuries A.D., uh, 
right down to Pope Francis today. Pope Francis is the first Jesuit pope. Jesuits are, by definition and training, mystics because it's required in their initiation process, their, their education process, that they practice the, um, the spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius of Loyola, okay? And that includes mysticism, pure and simple, okay? Anyhow, so we could, let's all throw rocks at the Catholics. Uh, no, let's not stop there, <laughs> if we're gonna throw rocks. In Protestantism, it's the charismatic music movement. In Judaism, it's the Kabbalists. Right? Remember, some while back, Madonna was into Kabbalah? What a crock. Anyhow, in Islam, it's the Sufi sect. In Hinduism, it's every guru. In Buddhism, it's every priest. In, <clears throat> in animism, it's the shamans or the witch doctors, same thing. And believe it or not, you find mysticism in atheism. Hallucinogenic drug users. Same experience. Exactly the same experience. Um, those who may be familiar with the Beatles may remember their experience. In 1967, they went off and studied with Maharishi Mahayash Yogi in his ashram in India for six months or a year or some such period of time. They came back and they basically said, we're not doing drugs anymore, we don't need to. Huh? We can do the same thing with yoga. We can do the same thing with meditation, right? But it's the same experience, this mind-expanding thing. This is what is so enticing about all these various avenues, okay? Mystics of all varieties get along quite nicely. You may remember about a year or so ago, this whole, uh, it's probably two years now. Uh, so you got Tony Palmer down here on the bottom right, who kind of mediated the contact between this Copeland guy and Pope Francis. Do you remember, do you, remember, you watched that video, anybody? Yeah, okay, you saw that, okay. What was the basis of their, their fellowship? The protest is over, but why is it over? Because we all have the same experience. Palmer, Copeland, Francis are all mystics. Right after that video when, the, when Copeland, uh, Palmer says the protest is over and, and, and uh, Copeland gets up and he says, oh, praise the Lord, you know, then he goes off into speaking in tongues. Mysticism is the great tying element. Remember the apostate Protestantism, or yeah, Catholicism, apostate Protestantism, and, and spiritualism. Join hands, okay? It's happening, just, you know, keep an eye on it, right? Um... I don't really know all these folks here. I, I'm pretty certain that, that this guy is, is Copeland, and I think that's his wife. The guy in the white is the Pope, I know that much. Uh, and there's Palmer over there. I don't know the rest of those, but I, I understand that they are all like American charismatic type, evangelical, whatever, charismatic leaders type of thing, okay? Um, <clears throat> and they all get along just really great. Don't have any troubles. Because... They all recognize, you know, we have different routes, but we all end up at the same place. It goes further than that. You know, uh, I don't really know, you know, I'm just judging. I, I, I'm pretty certain, where's my button? There we go. The orange has got to be like Hare Krishna, I would think. Uh, this looks like Greek Orthodox or something. I don't know, this looks like some form of Islam. These guys, I would guess, are Islam. Uh, I don't know, Hindu? 
maybe Confucian, something, I'm not sure. Probably Protestant back here, I don't know who these guys are. You know, there's only one guy in the whole picture that I can really resonate with. That's the guy in the back left. It's like, how do I get out of here? <laughs> I like him. He's probably Secret Service agent or something. I don't know what he is, but you know, it's just like, how do I get out of here? Mysticism is the great common denominator, right? It, it work, reaches across all these boundaries. <clears throat> we have reached the perils of the last days when some, yes, many, shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. Be cautious in regard to what you read and what you hear. We read this before, so I'm going to skip over it now. I wanted to reemphasize it. But, you know, I tell you in the name of the Lord God of Israel that Satan is presenting his sophistries to ministers and medical workers, and if our people will listen to these sophistries, they will become impregnated with the same satanic idea of a popular religion that will cause them to develop into gods, and there will be no place in their lives for God or for Christ. And the light given me in regard to the poor understanding of those that have been in the truth, that these sophistries... And this mysticism and doing away with the personality of God and with the personality of Christ will get the whole room of the heart all ready for these miracles that Satan will come in to work right in our midst. Some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. This pantheistic tendency of doing away with the personality of God, she says, prepares the mind for the reception of satanic miracles, right? Okay, so this is sounding pretty bad. <laughs> Where do we go and how do we deal with this in, in Ellen White's day? This is, there's lessons we learned here. <clears throat> and I want you to notice the parallels between the way the Lord, largely through Ellen White, dealt with Kellogg's apostasy and the way the Lord in person dealt with Lucifer's apostasy, right? Some thought the time had come long ago to make a determined effort to break the spell and expose the deception. She's talking about Kellogg. For years, one and still another of Dr. Kellogg's men have stood forth claiming that Dr. Kellogg is all right, and he teaches the message as we believe it, that he believes the testimonies. But at the same time, a work of misrepresentation was going on, and many of our people were becoming spiritually deceived. To those who urged immediate action, I said, Wait until Dr. Kellogg himself and those closely allied with him take an open stand. Then be all prepared with matter ready to print. Again, I want to point out the Lord uses strategy, the effective timing and deployment of his resources. To do A at the wrong time is a disaster. Hold A till the right time for A. Hold B for the right time for B. This requires intelligence. This is not something that you respond to with a knee-jerk, gut-level reaction. Some thought the time had come long ago. Kellogg's causing trouble. We've got to stop it. Wait. Wait. I was shown that our brethren must make no move until Dr. Kellogg and his associates had taken a decided position to repudiate the testimonies. When this was done, we must show our people the right side and take the affirmative in the name of the Lord. We had to move. And yet we had to wait until those in error thought they could carry things against the ministers and churches. I was shown their course of action and had everything in readiness for such a movement and labored to defeat their deep-laid plot. Now, in, in society at large today, there's a term that is uh, 
almost synonymous with nut job. <laughs> okay? And that is, he's a conspiracy theorist. Well, you know, there are a lot of nut job conspiracies out there. I think it's safe to say that. I don't think anybody would say that every conspiracy that comes down the pike is, is, is based in any sort of fact. But this is a conspiracy. There was an intelligent, strategic, deep-laid plot against God's church and God's people. It will happen again. You, you can bank on it. <laughs> you, can, you can count on it happening again. And it demands intelligent, strategic response. This is why there are generals in the army. If you just gave everybody a rifle and said, oh, I don't know, just go out and do what you want. It ain't going to work well. Friends of, doctor, of the doctor were visiting our churches, acting as spies to work up a sentiment favorable to his interests. They claimed that he was in perfect harmony with the message as we believe it and that he believed the testimonies. A work of deception was being carried on. Many of our people were becoming confused. Many of the angels were becoming confused, and yet nothing was done to protect them. That still bothers me. But you know what? God's probably smarter than I am. Yeah. Let's just, you know, we can probably bank on that one too. Okay? I said to those who urged immediate action, do not act hastily. It will be better to wait until Dr. Kellogg and his associates take the position that they do not believe the testimonies. When this time comes, we are to be prepared with suitable matter for publication to meet the issue. I can, man, there are heart-rending letters from A.G. Daniels especially. He says, Sister White, I was just in Battle Creek. I was talking to one of the physicians in the sanitarium. He tells me that scores of our young people are being ruined for the Lord's work by Dr. Kellogg's influence. We have to say something. She says, wait not the time. What that means is that those young people were going to stand or fall based on their own faith. You will stand or fall based on your own faith. Give up on the idea there's some guy on YouTube who's going to tell you all the evils of the church so that you can be informed and intelligent. It ain't going to happen. The guys who are doing that are barking up the wrong tree, and those who are depending on it are way out on the limb of the wrong tree. You're going to depend, you need to depend, on unwavering faith in a thus saith the Lord. There ain't nothing much beyond that that I can point you to with any hopefulness. Well, they waited. This was done, she says. Meetings were held in Battle Creek at which the testimonies were presented in a very objectionable light. The testimonies were practically repudiated, but matter was ready for publication. Our people on the right side took a strong affirmative position in the name of the Lord, and the widespread deception was arrested. One of the leaders in Battle Creek, that would be A.T. Jones, one of the leaders in Battle Creek said that the lid of the kettle was lifted too soon, that had they waited a little longer, they might have had nearly all the churches on their side. And I think he's right. They might have. They might have. The devil almost had half of the angels in heaven. 
This is serious stuff. The sentiments in Living Temple regarding the personality of God have been received. Okay, okay, so um, just notice the uh, heading up there. Okay, time for silence. There is also a time to speak. That's the point here. The sentiments in Living Temple regarding the personality of God have been received even by men who have had long experience in the truth. When such men consent to eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, we are no longer regarded as subject as a matter to be treated with the greatest delicacy. That those whom we thought sound in the faith should have failed to discern the specious, deadly influence of this science of evil should alarm us as nothing else has alarmed us. It is something that cannot be treated as a small matter that men who have had so much light and such clear evidence as the genuineness of the truth we hold should become unsettled and led to accept spiritualistic theories regarding the personality of God. And still, <laughs> there's a time to speak, but that time to speak is not the time to be silent. There is a time to be silent, and that's not the time to speak. When it's time to speak, silence is cowardice. When it's time to be silent, speaking is stupidity. You know, I would love to be able to tell you exactly how to know which is which. And I'm not even going to pretend it. You're going to know which is which because you know what God wants you to do. Amen. And probably, with all due respect, the majority of us will get that wrong. <laughs> we will think that we are called of God to, well, let's just not talk about that. Or we will think, the Lord has called me to set the record straight. And the truth is, the majority of Adventists will fall. I hope we're not among them. But you know what? Don't look to me to tell you which is which. Because it's, it's, it's way over my pay scale. <laughs> Let's go on. <clears throat> um, oh, that's kind of fascinating, but I'm not going to go into that. I'm going to skip over that. Uh, I want to get down to this. Here's the reason, here's, here's the kind of the, the rationale or the hypothesis behind all this. We start off looking at Lucifer's rebellion. And 4,000 years later, Christ's response. The good Kellogg, in a unique and special way, grasped some of the features of Christ's response. And it was sufficient to result, along with the teaching of Jones and Wagner, the, 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 I don't want to leave the theology out, the theology is important, but Kellogg took the theology and said, let's apply it. You know, there's abstract theology, there's applied theology. Okay? And Kellogg said, let's put it into practice. Let's trust God to take care of us and let's help other people. Let's lend to the Lord, right? He who has pity on the poor lends to the Lord. Remember that? Okay. There's even a balance on that, though. It's, everything is balanced. The good Kellogg led to the beginning of the loud cry. Unfortunately, because of his own weaknesses and errors and other people contributing heavily to that point, he jumped traces and he became the bad Kellogg more closely united to the devil than anybody else I can point to any inspired testimony on. What do we learn from that? Why have we gone over these four things? Well, the good Kellogg, the beginning of the loud cry, has an obvious relationship. Oops, I got it backwards. Go to that one first. The alpha of apostasy has an obvious relationship to the omega of apostasy, which is yet to come. The beginning of the loud cry has an obvious relationship to the full development of the loud cry, which is 
yet to come. A familiarity with our history, sacred history, I believe is our best chance at having any clue of what's going on around us. Now, I want to paint one last thing. I'm long on time here. I'm just going to do this verbally because it's a different presentation. What is the omega of apostasy going to look like? The omega of apostasy is going to look like medical missionary work. The devil always works as a counterfeit. Kellogg's alpha of apostasy was going into medical missionary work. Now, it's really interesting. In the one classic uh, passage where she says, what would happen if this was allowed to continue on further? Okay? Um, boy, I almost wish I had that on the screen, but I don't want to take the time to get it up. Um, okay. Ellen White writing about Kellogg's alpha of apostasy here. She says, the enemy of souls is sought to bring in the supposition that a great reformation was to take place among Seventh-day Adventists. And this reformation would consist in giving up the doctrines which stand as the pillars of our faith and engaging in a process of reorganization. Were this reformation to take place, what would result? Okay, so she's saying, here's the alpha. Here's Kellogg's alpha. What happens if it fully develops? Okay, the alpha is like a sprouted acorn. What's the oak tree going to look like? Okay. The principles of truth that God in his wisdom has given to the remnant church would be discarded. Our religion would be changed. The fundamental principles that have sustained the work for the last 50 years would be accounted as error. A new organization would be established. That was an interesting one. Kellogg, I've, I've, I found evidence that Kellogg was seeking to establish something that was kind of like a predecessor of a 501c3. <laughs> they didn't even have that, the, the income tax law thing going in place, so 501c3 wasn't in existence as such, but he was working to establish an organization that way, and he wanted to kind of use it as a big uniting thing. It, it, it fell through, but that's probably what I think, it's the only thing I can point to that, you know, when she says a new organization would be established. Books of a new order would be written. Uh, that's, you've probably heard that one before, right? I, I really like the, uh, let's hit the wrong button. Uh, that one is almost just so funny because for years and years, decades now, every time somebody comes out with a book that somebody else doesn't like, says, that's a book of a new order. You know? <laughs> We've thrown that one back and forth so much, it's kind of ridiculous. But it's still true. Books of a new order would be presenting the, you know, a varied uh, system, well, presenting a system of intellectual philosophy would be introduced in these books of a new order, right? The founders of this system would go into the cities and do a wonderful work, Kellogg's city mission work, okay? The Sabbath, of course, would be lightly regarded as also the Sabbath, also the God who created it. Nothing would be allowed to stand in the way of the new movement. There's some force behind this thing. This is not just a passive, oh, let's you know, some of us want to go over here. No, 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 this is a, you fall in line or we bust you type of a, type of a thing, okay? Nothing stands in the way of the new movement. The leaders would teach that virtue is better than vice. Oh, that's nice. But God being removed, they would place their dependence on human power, which without God is worthless. Their foundation would be built on the sand, and storm and tempest would sweep away the structure. I want to look at that last little bit there. Um, well, just very quickly, let's do this. I don't think this is a particularly big player, but if you, you probably can't read it up there at the top there, but it says the... Um, the uh, Adventist Peace Fellowship. 
it's not a it's not a huge thing. I just kind of cite this as a as a as a bit player in the thing. Okay, the Adventist Peace Fellowship is one of a sisterhood of peace fellowships. There's a Baptist Peace Fellowship, Catholic Peace Fellowship, Presbyterian Peace Fellowship. There's a Jewish Peace Fellowship and a Hindu and Islam. I don't know what all. There are all these peace fellowships. They're all very ecumenical in mindedness and. Um, this is a kind of a classic example of the Sabbath, of course, would be lightly regarded. Down the bottom left there, you can't read it, so I'll put it bigger there. This is their little thing. This is the only thing they say about the Sabbath. We support debt relief for developing nations and a preferential option for the poor. <laughs> That's the Sabbath? Whatever. Sabbath economics, okay? And incidentally, notice that while there is a place a good and right and proper place for concern for the poor and the ministry to the needy and such things, that they're also heavily playing into the whole victim philosophy. But anyhow, okay, let's go on. Now, the foundation would be built on the sand and storm and tempest would sweep away the structure. What is that an allusion to? Where, does, where do those ideas come from? What's that? The parable of the two houses. A wise man built his house upon a rock. Okay, foolish man built his house upon the sand. Okay, so the foundation was built on the sand and storm and tempest would sweep away the structure. Now, here's the thing about that parable. There are two houses. There's the house on the rock. There's the house on the sand. Let me put it the other way around so this is on the right hand for you. So here's the house on the sand. Here's the house on the rock. Okay? Two houses... We aren't told anything about the houses to differentiate them except the foundation. They may have looked exactly the same. They could be, you know, suburbia cookie-cutter houses for all I know, okay? Two houses, only one storm. That's the key. It's not like God says, oh, look, there's a foolish man. I'm going to hit him with a Cat 5 hurricane, just blow his house away. Oh, look, there's a righteous man over there. Oh, well, I'll send him some April showers so he can have May flowers. No, 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 no. This is the same storm. Storm and tempest will sweep away this structure, but not this one. Why and how? What makes the difference? Okay? Now, bear in mind, this is all, I'm just, I'm just, I'm, I'm, just trying to paraphrase everything that I would like to present, just to get the idea in your mind here, okay? This is all taking place in what we would refer to as the little time of trouble. The world is falling apart. Financial issues, political issues, social issues, you know, everything that you think you know as solid, it ain't solid anymore. It's falling apart underneath you, okay? You can be arrested, well... Okay, I'm Canadian, I'm not Canadian, but living in Canada. Right now, in, in Canada, if uh, a gentleman with a beard comes into my business with a dress on and says his name is Janice, and I say he, that's a federal offense, I can go to prison. Yeah, yeah. Gender identity, I must respect the, cho the chosen gender identity. Uh, the use of the wrong pronoun is a federal offense in Canada. Okay. It's coming to the United States, don't get me wrong. It's, it's like you know, a blink of an eye behind down here, but it's coming. Okay. That's just one issue. You know? But when you see the medical system fall apart, which it will, when you see the political system fall apart, which I think it already has, when you see, <laughs> when you see the financial system hit the rocks, that's the little time of trouble. And there is not going to be any spiritual movement that's going to have any traction whatsoever that's not addressing the felt needs of the people. Does that make sense? So you've got the apostate 
medical missionary movement probably way out ahead of us, to be honest, probably better funded and, and, and ahead of us, okay? Then you've got God's people who are finally picking up the, the pace and finally getting into the game, and you have, have God's people finally ministering as Jesus ministered. Doing the one thing that Jesus did, portraying the character of the Father through a, a, a mingled ministry of teaching and healing and caring for the people. These two are going forward. It's a two-horse race. Now, this horse is probably split into a gazillion different factions and, you know, uh, shades and colors and whatever else, okay? But, but basically, you've got the false and you've got the true, and it's a, it's, a, it's a head-to-head race down the home stretch, so to speak, okay? What does it mean when storm and tempest sweeps away this structure? It's simple. Eventually, things get so bad that the selfish heart is not going to give anything away. Because I have to take care of myself. I can't trust God, right? God being removed, they would place their dependence on human power. I have to take care of myself. And I've only got three more cases of food, and I ain't giving it to you. Storm and tempest will sweep away this structure because they will simply stop. They won't go any further because selfishness won't. Jesus put his disciples in that same position, interestingly enough, twice. One time he turned to Philip and says, Philip, there's 5,000 people out there. Why don't you feed them? And Philip, being a rational guy like myself, he said, Jesus, that's going to cost a lot of money. And we don't have that money. He didn't say that, but I made that up. He said, it's going to cost a lot of money. And Jesus says, don't worry about it. Have them sit down. Here's what's going to happen as I see it. These guys hit the wall. They have nothing more they are willing to give. These guys hit the wall. They have nothing more to give. These guys stop. What do these guys do? What do God's people do? They keep on giving. How are they giving? I don't know. God's supplying their needs. Some little kid had a sack lunch. (laughs) And imagine the power of that position. Here I am. I'm... I'm going to make myself the good guy this for right now. <laughs> I've got a sandwich. Here's this person who has not sinned away his day of grace entirely, <laughs> okay, but doesn't understand the truth, doesn't understand what's going on in this world that he's living in, and he's hungry. I say, Man, you look awful hungry. Here, take the sandwich. He's got a little decency left in him yet. He says, I can't take your sandwich. What are you going to eat? What an opportunity. He says, you know what? I don't have to worry about that. God says, my bread and water is sure. He's got my back. You don't have that. You need the sandwich. Take the sandwich. But if you want to know how you can get in a position where God will have your back too, I can give you a little Bible study. (laughs) There is no position that's going to be more powerful than the manifestation of continued love for our neighbor through faith and confidence held in place by love for God. Does that make sense? Are you with me on this? Lucifer started the great controversy by saying, I don't think God's going to take care of me. I have to take care of myself. He lost faith in God's love and power. At the end of time, God's people are going to demonstrate that there is no reason to lose faith in God's love and power. Even when they have no food and the whole world is hungry. Even when they have no resources and the whole world needs everything, everything. 
through whatever means, to whatever extent, and whatever details, I can't tell you any of that, God will allow them to continue manifesting the character of the Father, which is love, and it will be held in place only by their faith and love for him. The two great commandments, love God with all your heart, love your fellow men. It also happens to be the same thing as the gold tried in the fire of Laodicea, which is faith and love combined. That's where we're going with this thing. That's where this ends up. I don't know that I'm ready. And and without sounding big-headed or pig-headed or something, you know, I, I don't see a lot of encouragement to say that a whole lot of other people look ready to me either. Remember those statements? In the final conflict with Satan, every earthly support will be cut off. But it is safe to let go of every earthly support, cling to the hand of him who pulled Peter from the waves, and we can never form a full, all-round Christian character until we cut off every earthly support. That's where we're headed. That's when we pray, O Lord, come quickly. That's what we're asking for. Let's bow our heads. Father, we thank you for this Sabbath morning. Lord, this hasn't been a normal devotional meeting. But if I can steal a line from Abraham Lincoln, may we commit ourselves to that last full measure of devotion that says we would die because we trust you. May we have your leading, may we have your wisdom, may we have your grace and power, and may we be enabled to manifest the character of the Father to a world which is dying because they don't understand. We ask that you would create that devotion in our hearts, that it would become a non-negotiable in our minds, in our very being. In Jesus' name I pray. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.